All right, open up your Bibles to Acts 17 if you're not already there. I want to just read verses 16, 17, and 18. Uh, Steve just read that passage. I wanted it to be fresh on our minds as we talk about cultural renewal. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Let's stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was proclaiming the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, draw us close by your Holy Spirit as the scriptures are read and the word is proclaimed. May the word of faith be on our lips and in our hearts and let all other words slip away. May there be one voice we hear today, the voice of truth and grace, Christ our great shepherd. And amen. You may be seated. Well, this is the uh, this message is the fifteenth and final message. Uh, I think this may be the longest, more topical series I've ever done. <laughs> Surveyed all summer, um, but this series, ecclesiastical schematics, uh, we're going to wrap up today. And I decided that I would finish the series by reminding us about the mission of the church, but this time from a different angle. We, we talked about the mission at the very beginning, but I want to take a little bit of a different angle with it. Um, we talked earlier about the mission of the church from Matthew 28's Great Commission, Commission passage, but I'd like, again, to come at it a little bit differently. Uh, it is true, absolutely, that Jesus has sent us into the world to disciple nations. And we read that, and we sort of just read it and say, yes, that's true, and then we just go on with our lives, and we rarely think about how those things intersect. We are, according to Matthew 28, to convert nations by the power of the gospel, and assuming that much, we baptize them into the triune name, and from there, we are responsible for teaching them to observe the law of Christ. And this particular goal is true for all nations of the earth. All nations of the earth, right? Do, do you support Israel? Do you support Palestine? Do you support? I support discipling all the nations. That's my uh, campaign uh, theme. <laughs> but it, that goal, though, is for all nations, no matter where they're at, no matter what people groups, tribes, tongues, you name it, we're supposed to, to do that. We're supposed to teach them. But we're also needing to remember that we are not simply trying to snatch a few souls out of the nations so that they can then be rapture ready. Uh, which is a whole lot of conversation at the moment. We want nations to be educated in the ways of Christ, and the way we do that is through the pulpit and the press, or the pulpit and the pen. We are the church, we gather, we, sh we, we scatter, we live our lives to the glory of God in every facet, and also we publish ideas, and we try to persuade uh, cultures to abandon their idols and then come to Christ for forgiveness. And so pulpit and press, pulpit and pen, we want to use both avenues. 
So the Bible must be taught, it needs to be taught, it needs to be asserted, and it needs to be pressed into the world, pressed into every area of life. I mean, that's been our theme for six years. Today marks our six-year anniversary. And that's been the same thing we've said over and over and over for six years. And we're not going to change that because that's what Christ has called us to do. He has called us to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. Now, we are under a universal theocracy. I just said the naughty word. <laughs> we are under a universal theocracy. Say that word today and see how many looks you get. We're always under a theocracy because Jesus is Lord of all. But the theocracy that many men will choose is a God of their own making. And that's part of the problem. Uh, they want a God to rule and it's either, it's either Christ or it's chaos, right? It's, it's either Jesus the Lord or it's what we have now, <laughs> the God of apostate people. So the nations need to know and submit to this theocracy, seeing this current theocracy as being entirely defunct and expired. Uh, the, the, the death throes of nations who, who, who destabilize and banksters who fund them and all of this stuff is just orchestrated. You think of the influence of the World Economic Forum and they want countries destabilized so that they will cry out for a savior. And, and America is no different. We need a savior, but it's not going to be uh, Klaus Schwab. But there's another aspect to this I think that's really important, and namely the issue of cultural renewal. Cultural renewal in every sphere of life. We need to kind of a threefold thing here. That's been the heart of this series. But we need to read our Bibles imaginatively. That is, we, we look to the Bible not as though it was merely a scientific textbook meant to help us explain things like biology. Though in today's biologically confused world, we, we need to know that God made them male and female. But that's not merely what it is. We look to the Bible and we find that the world is engulfed in this grand story of creation, fall, redemption. That is the story of the world. And that's why I recommend Walter's book to you, because he goes into that. But that's the, that's the story of the world, creation, fall, redemption. And the Bible tells us what that is. The Bible explains reality. It explains what it is we're doing in this world right now. God made this world. It fell into sin because of man's sin and re rebellion. And then Christ is restoring it. And that's, that's where all of it's going. That's what history is doing. So we need to read our Bibles imaginatively and think through those things. But we are also called to worship God faithfully. We're supposed to worship God faithfully. That is, we worship God on his terms, making sure that he is the our great anchor and foundation and center, the center of your family, the center of your marriage, the center of our church and all churches. We want to worship God faithfully. We want to be faithful to him on the Lord's day and on every day. We want to be faithful to him. And on top of this, so you have read our Bibles imaginatively, worship God faithfully. And uh, I stole this from Theopolis, by the way. Uh, great, great, great resources, and I like, I like this threefold thing. On top of this, God has called us to engage the culture intelligently. God has called us to engage the culture intelligently. That is, we need to be able to read our watches as well as we read our Bibles. We need to know how to t read time and, and, and listen to God's word and find ourselves in this 
cultural moment. So read your watches just as well as you read your Bibles. We, we exegete scripture, we pull out of scripture, we, and yet in some fashion, we do exegete culture. We understand the times we're living in, and we need to be willing to engage the philosophical ideas of the day. And we do all of this so that culture is renewed into the truth and beauty and goodness that it's supposed to be under the feet of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's incredible how simple that plan is, right? I mean, it's, it's a basic outline. We want culture to be renewed into the truth and the beauty and the goodness that it's supposed to be under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we don't want trash world. We don't want a world of immorality, uh, which is bursting at the seams right now. Um, because you have people standing on the corner in London and they have a sign that says, Queers for Palestine. And the question is, who's going to tell them? Does Islam tolerate that? No. So that's, that is a cultural breaking point with confused idiocy running rampant. And we need to engage the culture intelligently. So that's part of what I want to deal with today. So let's examine Paul's engagement of this culture of Athens in Acts, 6, uh, Acts 17. The story of Paul at Athens is really a story about cultural incompatibility. It's a collision between the theocracy of Christ and the idolatries of men. So we'll walk through the text here. In verse 16, we're told that Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy. He was waiting for them to meet him at Athens. So they had split apart. Paul goes to Athens. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy. To, they were supposed to meet there. And so back in the day, you couldn't text message. Kids, I know it's hard to believe, but you couldn't text message back then. And so you go to Athens and you just hope and pray within the next two or three weeks, they show up like they're supposed to. So Paul's waiting there, and while there, the text says that Paul's spirit was being provoked within him. Now, the word that's translated as provoked carries the idea that Paul was very irritated. He was irritated by the sight of the city, which was awash in idolatry. So it wasn't a mere inconvenience where he shows up and he looks around and, oh, this is not good. He's angry about it. Uh, this word, actually, in the Old Testament, it's used elsewhere to describe God's extreme anger at the idolatry of his covenant people. You can read that in Deuteronomy 9.18 and Psalm 106.29. So we have righteous anger here. Paul looks around and he's angry. If you've ever looked around at our culture and you see, like, the pride, the, I call it the arrogance flag flying, um, or you see... Uh, things paraded in the streets, and you get a little bit angry about it, that's a godly thing. So you can be angry and don't sin, right? But we, we should be provoked. It, it, it is irritable to, to see people in such high-handed rebellion. So uh, perturbation, he's perturbed by this. It's set in, and we're supposed to feel that way when we see a proliferation of idolatry, like statism and other religious paganism. But what did Paul see? Now, no doubt, and some of these things are still there today in Athens, no doubt Paul looked around the city and he saw statues of Augustus Tiberius, for example. He saw statues of the Roman Empire um, reflecting the emperor. Uh, he saw temples to Zeus and Hermes. He no doubt saw the Parthenon, which is still there today 
a little bit wrecked over time, but it's still standing in Athens. You can go to the Parthenon. It's incredible. I've never been there, but I'd love to stand there and think, wow, this is, Paul saw this. This is wild. To, you know, I've had that experience before in, in Rome. Um, but to see the missionary journey in places like Athens, that, that's on my bucket list, so to speak. <laughs> Someday I'll go. But he looked around. He, he also saw phallic-like statues, which illustrated the immorality that came with the idolatry. And so he's looking around and he's seeing, boy, these people are quite religious. There would have been Greek and Roman gods with altars and statues and shrines that were set aside so that visitors to the city could engage and worship if they wanted to at those altars. Athens, you'll have to remember, by the time of Paul, had sort of fallen by the wayside, but Athens was once a great empire, and it was the birthplace of Western philosophy. It was the birthplace of things like theater and government and the agora, the marketplace. Uh, the Greeks were quite a prolific bunch. They were very good at developing things. And so you think of Socrates and all of these other philosophers who developed things like rhetoric and critical thinking, um, all of it. It was a place of cultural. It, it was a cultural hotbed even at the time of Paul. And as is always the case, cultures always reveal their religious assumptions. Cultures always reveal their religious assumptions. So rather than going to his Airbnb and waiting for his buddies off in the corner, rather than doing that, what does Paul do? He sees it and he gets to work. He says, I'm, I'm taking this opportunity. He reasons with the Jews in the synagogue. There would have been a synagogue or several synagogues there. He also knows, there, the Bible says here, that God-fearing Gentiles would have been there. So these are Gentiles who would have been circumcised and come into the Jewish religion. They're there too. He did evangelism and street preaching in the marketplace, verse 17, every day with those who happened to be present. As sovereignty would have it, Paul encountered both Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Two groups out of many groups, but the Epicureans lived for pleasure and indulgence. That was their main thing. They just feed the flesh, basically. They live for, for pleasure. The Stoics, at this time, most scholars think that they were probably the most uh, popular group at the time, but Stoics, they elevated the rational and thus they suppressed the emotional. So if you ever said to somebody, why do you have such a Stoic look on your face? Well, they're either in deep thought and they're suppressing their emotions, but that's what the Stoics believed in. Now, Luke is the writer of Acts, and he's setting Paul up as a new Socrates of sorts. He is one who can take on the intellectuals of the day. So Paul shows up. He looks around. All right, we are going to hit this head on. We're going to deal with this nonsense. Anyhow, they think Paul, he is an idle babbler which is to say they believe him to be a fool who pretends to be smart. That's what the phrase idle babbler means. Oh, you're just a fool. You, you're trying to sound smart. You don't know anything. That's what they think he is. Um, he, being a proclaimer of strange deities or of foreign deities, that phrase is what led to Socrates' own downfall. And now it's used here of Paul. Paul is a proclaimer of strange deities. But the message is clear. Paul is a proclaimer of the totalizing kingdom of Jesus Christ and his death-defeating resurrection. That's the message he has for this culture. 
Jesus was once dead, but he's no longer dead. That's the gospel message Paul used to take on the idols of Athens. So Paul was charged with introducing foreign gods. That was his charge, and so they took him to the Areopagus, which is the high court of appeal for criminals. And that phrase here in your text, taking him, implies that they were putting him on trial. So they, they, they are essentially arresting him in a very loose manner. You come with us, and they take him to the Areopagus. That's the high court of appeal. That's where you go to settle disputes. So there was at least some sense of a trial here, some initial hearing of sorts. Having drawn attention of the civil authorities, which is a good and godly enterprise, by the way, they want to inquire and hear his defense. And they say, what is this, quote, new teaching? This is new to them, Jesus and the resurrection. They have not heard this before. And according to verse 20, it was something strange to their ears. Curiously enough, Luke gives us some insight to what was going on in the culture during this time. In verse 21, Luke tells us that the city folk spent their time telling or hearing something new. That was just what they did. Uh, so think of uh, a bunch of old retired men gathered at the coffee shop. What are they doing? They're talking about something new. <laughs> telling the story or hearing the story. But that's, why the, uh, that's what prompted the authorities to investigate Paul. Something was very new to them. And consequently, Paul stood in their midst and got to work. Now this speech here, I'm not going to go into super, you know, super detail here, but the speech was rhetorical genius. In order to change their behavior, in order to deal with their bad doctrine, in order to deal with their apostate culture, Paul uses what's called forensic rhetoric. He presents his case, he uses scripture, and he even pulls from their own Jewish and Greek philosophical sources. And he says, look, even your own people say this. He pulls it together, he presents his case. It's, a, it's rhetorical genius. In verse 22, he affirms that they are very religious in all respects. Um, that is a funny thing about our culture because we'll run into students at GMU who will tell us, well, I'm not religious. And that's when we get to inform them that they, in fact, are very, very religious. Uh, but Paul says, look, you guys are very religious in all respects. Um, a term of endearment. It's a respectful beginning. Clearly, you're passionate people who believe very fervently about something or someone. And he jumps right in after the introduction to a central thesis, the issue at stake. He tells them he was in the city looking around and examining the objects of their worship. And lo, what does Paul find? There was in the city an altar that had a very curious inscription on it to an unknown God. Rhetorically speaking, we have discovered the main problem here. The Athenians are creature worshipers with epistemological deficiencies. Epistemology, the theory of knowledge, how we know things. So they worship the creature, and guess what? They are struggling with this thing called knowledge. They are deficient. They are not epistemologically self-conscious, which is where Christians are. They are unconscious about it. They are ignorant about it. They have suppressed the truth, and they worship the creature. They have, think about, see what's, Look what Luke is telling us here. They have altars to gods that they say can be known. Right? Zeus, Hermes, 
some of the Greek gods, some of the Roman gods, um, oftentimes overlapping in their function with different names. They have apparently gods that can be known, and yet here is an altar to a god that cannot be known. Their epistemology, their theory of knowledge, is seriously lacking. Paul's question here, probably what's running through his mind is, can the gods be known or not? You guys are confused as a culture. Can, can the gods be known or are they unknown? There's a crisis of immorality which leads to a crisis of knowledge. What would it take to arrive at said knowledge anyway? Paul's a good presuppositionalist. If they admit that they cannot know everything, which is what they're admitting, they're admitting with an altar to an unknown God that they can't know everything. And if that's true that you can't know everything, on what basis can you know anything? And I think that's what's going through Paul's mind. They have forfeited knowledge altogether and are now culpable for their ignorance. You ask an unbeliever today, can you know everything there is to know? Well, no, no. Well, can you be sure about everything that you claim to know? And they'll say things like, well, no, I can't be sure. Then you don't know anything. And some have the audacity to say, you're right, I don't. And they sort of live in this matrix world. But some will say, well, I, I, I might know some things. But if you just give toss knowledge aside and the ability for us as creatures with you know, body, soul, spirit, as hearts and minds to have knowledge, if you throw that away, you've given up everything. You have admitted defeat to the Christian worldview. That's what Paul is, is doing here. So they forfeited knowledge. They're culpable for their ignorance. And Paul jumps into the main body of the argument. The, these Athenians, like all non-Christians, worship in ignorance. And this is because their foolish hearts are darkened. There are only two paths here. Only two paths. You worship and serve the Creator, or you worship and serve the creature. The same Paul who was here in Athens is the same one who wrote Romans chapter 1. Those are the options. You worship one or the other. And they, these guys have chosen the latter. However, the religious root of their being, the heart, is always in worship mode. It's, the heart is always in worship mode. It's just an on switch that cannot be shut off. We're always in worship mode. Everybody is. And Paul simply tells them, you guys are in worship mode. You have a crisis of, of intellect here. Let me tell you something. I know the God who made the heart. I know the God who made you in his image. I know the God who has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 23, that this God is the God who made the world and all things in it. You guys are building statues of concrete. I know who made the stone and the water that you put together and mash up in order to make a statue. I can go further than what you have presented here. He is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not dwell in temples made with hands. It's an echo of Solomon's speech when he dedicated the temple. In other words, God is the transcendent one who destroys their immanentistic worship. They do not have a category for a knowable transcendent. They only worship what they can see. They only worship what's in front of them. That's what I mean by immanentistic. So God is above and beyond all of their religiously informed culture-building idolatry. 
God is beyond all of that. And in their view, in the Greek view, just like the pagan view of the Western world that's adopted Eastern paganism, but in their view, all is one, what we call monism. All is just one. There's a harmony of oneness with us, the trees, the grass, the sun. That's the monistic worldview, and that's where the Greeks were caught up in. But in the Christian worldview, there is God, and then there's everything else, a twoism. That's Peter Jones's language. So the heart, the human heart, is the heart of idolatry. And he goes back and says, you guys are idolaters. I know the God who made your heart. And he's not culpable for your fallenness. You are, and you need to be held account. And that's where the gospel really strikes home. Furthermore, verse 25, this God that Paul proclaims is all-powerful. He's not needing human hands to do anything because he doesn't need anything. He is altogether self-sufficient. In fact, his own self-sufficiency is evinced by the fact that he is the one who gives life and breath. In verse 26, this God created Adam and everyone since then comes from that one man. He gives us nations and governments and cultures so that people, this is verse 27, would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Paul's argument before the Areopagus here is the entirety of our being and existence is wrapped up in him, and even their own poets acknowledge such, as he says in verse 28. But, but God's divine nature, who God is as a self-sufficient being isn't to be conflated with things like gold or silver or stone. That is what idolatry is. It's elevating the creation above the creator. These are images made by men, he says in verse 29. God is beyond such elemental things. Indeed, he made them. So you, and you think of our culture today who worships, worship, worships sex and worships it so much it's willing to just do whatever possible to manipulate and pervert it. Well, I know the God who gave us that. And he ordered the world in such a way. That's how you bring the gospel into these idolatrous circumstances. They were worshiping gold and silver and stone. And God, Paul says, look, I know the God who made that stuff. Why are you worshiping such a putrid statue that you made with your own hands and some of it you threw the rest away because you were done with it paul concludes his rhetorical masterpiece men's ignorance god has often overlooked but since christ is raised from the dead look at verse 30 and 31 god is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Now he gets to the heart of it. Paul crawls into their world and he sees that in some way these image-bearing men, they reflect the Christian worldview faintly, but it is a reflection. And on top of that, they live inconsistently with it because they don't have the gospel. All unbelievers live inconsistently with the truth of reality, with the truth of the gospel. 
Paul goes in and says, hey, you guys are worshipers. This is, I get it, you're passionate, but let me tell you something. And he brings this gospel through presuppositions to deal with their inconsistency. And he does not compromise the gospel by engaging their culture. Rather, he uses their culture itself with echoes of Christian doctrine unbeknownst to them. He uses it in order to bring them to repentance. In verse 32, hearing of the resurrection, some of them begin to sneer, but others were interested in hearing more. This is being a fisher of men. Some get caught in the net, some do not. Paul has presented the case to the Athenians, to their high court. This is like going up to the Supreme Court. He's presented his case for the theocracy of Christ, the rulership of his kingdom, and how men should respond to it. So then, how shall we live? My goal in highlighting this portion of Scripture is to get a essentially to get us thinking presuppositionally about the culture around us. Our our city, our county, uh, state, and nation are full of idols. We look around and we see there's an idol, there's an idol, there's an idol. And again, an idol is anything that God has not ordained in his law. That men create institutions, uh, abuse of things that God has given us that 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 are good, be it alcohol, sexuality, marriage, you name it, these gifts that God gives us. We, we abuse them. We distort them. We pollute them. But our whole, we are engulfed in idolatry. And idols, remember, are simply those things that we use to worship and serve alongside of or in place of the God of Scripture. All men, apart from Christ, are idolaters. That is the de facto bottom line position. All men apart from Christ are idolaters. Before you came to Christ, you were an idolater. Before I came to Christ, I was. The problem that we face today is that we have grown to be quite comfortable with religious pluralism in our culture. And I say we as the church. Um, You think about, in our nation, this idea of religious freedom. And people tout that. Many Christians say, yes, we're, we're America. We're free to be religious however we choose. But then you start reading things like, I don't know, the first commandment. And you realize, well, we're not actually, no one's free to do that. No one is free to worship and serve an idol before Yahweh. But many Christians are comfortable with religious pluralism going on in our culture. And that's, that's what Athens was doing during the time of Paul. Religious pluralism assumes the equal ultimacy of various and varying religious beliefs. So we, when you look around and say, well, all, all we, you know, we need to have sort of the, the diversity is our strength. We need, we, need, we need Muslims on the Supreme Court and we need, and, and you think about what's happening in our nation and, and, and looking at what's happening in London right now with the protests and in France and Europe, places where they've said because of essentially Islam taking over, you look at that and think, well, that's, they're not compromising. They believe that Allah is God, Muhammad is his prophet, and the Sharia law should be the, the law of the land. And you ask Christians, well, do you believe in God? Yes. Is Jesus Lord? Yep. Should Christ's law be the standard for a land? Oh, no. 
And they begin to walk down that path of religious pluralism where they forsake the lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of life. And here we go. And we see our culture ripping itself to shreds. What could go wrong, right? If we have all, all religions are welcome. So long as we don't have Christianity, they say, then any religion is fine and dandy. That's really what they're saying. See, unbelievers are willing to tolerate anything and everything except for the totalizing claims of Jesus Christ. They will tolerate anything and everything except for the exclusivity of Jesus. And this sort of spiritual vacuum happens because Christians have not believed that the gospel does something to the cultures of men. Your average evangelical Christian is rather comfortable, I, should, I would say, living in a bifurcated world where their inward spiritual life is kept intact while the outward living is stunted and impotent because the outward doesn't matter as much as the inward. That's the world of Greek philosophy. Plato and even Aristotle are the ones to blame for such nonsense. And then Thomas Aquinas, who tried to Christianize Aristotle. There's a whole plethora of issues that are downstream from this aberrant belief. And before we get into that a little bit more, I want to I take a minute to define culture. The word itself is related to the Latin word cultus. And cultus, as you can imagine, is related where we get the word cult. But in its Latin world, it just is a religious term used to describe worship. Everyone has a cultus, some sort of patterns of behavior, views about worship and service of a deity. Christianity is no different. Culture is the public manifestation of the religious ground motives and worship of a people. Culture is a public manifestation. Name your aspect of culture, whether it's government or language. Um, you know, the symbols we use to define certain things, uh, how we view economics. Culture is just a public manifestation of what's going on in the heart. That's what culture is. Culture starts in hearts and then it comes out the fingertips. And Henry Van Til has said that culture is religion externalized. A great quote from him in his book, The Calvinist Concept of Culture. He says that culture is religion externalized. When you look at the world, it's religion on display. And as we seek to live faithfully in obedience to the Lord, we're going to have to be more critical of the culture that we find ourselves in. That's the tension I always feel when I'm in Zambia. They just love America. And I always say, I love America too, in her ideal state. And that's not what we have now. And so I'm like, you know, I'm torn. And I try to explain this to my African friends. And they, you know, they're just like, we need Trump. And so we have this fun discussion that always happens as a result of that. And I'm like, yeah, I would prefer him definitely over what we have going on now. But this like ideal version is kind of what they see. They don't, they're not here, so they don't see the ins and outs, just like you don't see the ins and outs of their culture. It's the same, same type of thing. Although they know more about American politics than most Americans. They follow it very closely and they know. Uh, even an obscure senator from, you know, name your state, they know. But as we seek to live faithfully, we have to be more critical about what we find here. It's very easy to be carried off and carried along by 
worldly ideas and worldly philosophies and religious presuppositions, it's easy to be carried off by those things because the human heart is designed to function with those things. We're supposed to have biblical philosophy. We're supposed to have a theological outwork of culture and how it applies in various areas. We're supposed to have those things. God made it that way. And we shouldn't be surprised when the unbeliever, who also has the same type of heart, though unregenerate, builds a culture around perversion and idolatry. But if we, if we uncritically accept certain facets of culture because we're America, and we assume that those expressions are inherently biblical, then we'll be guilty of syncretism and the gospel will be lost. And I'll tell you, that's the greatest charge that I could bring against the American church is syncretism. Believing that you can have Jesus as Lord of your heart and just sort of do what everybody else does and it's okay. Culture making is an inescapable concept. Um, covenant keepers will make a culture based on biblical truth. They will insist upon it. But covenant breakers will make a culture based on the lie. But there is an antithesis that is unavoidable. Men will worship God or the creation. It's that simple. Looking at what God has called us to do to disciple the nations, we look at the culture and we say, that's creature worship, that's God worship. This is pure and good and lovely and holy. This is wicked and tyrannical and evil and apostate and God hates it. It's only those two things. So this, the structure of culture building remains eternally intact. Men have certain limitations that are imposed on them by God's law because that's the structure of the world. Things function a certain way in this world because God's law for creation remains. You, you, you can have all the surgeries and hormone therapies you want. A man is a man and a woman is a woman. That law does not change no matter what sort of exterior veneer you want to portray to the world. But that's the structure. There's a direction of culture building that is only as good as your religious presuppositions. And cultures are either oriented towards God or they're oriented towards idolatry. And it comes out in marriage and civil government, art, music, science, economics, every other department of life it comes out of. And, and I'm sure that I'm, you know, even the choir needs to be preached to, right? But when you think of what happened in 2016 with the Obergefell decision, that was a, a monumental decision that had massive ramifications for our culture. It was a major turning point. We're, we're living in a massive social revolution that none of us probably ever could have imagined. But when those decisions happen, it's not like, oh, suddenly now the culture's bad. There's a backlog of transactions that go before that, whether it's no-fault divorce or anything else related to marriage that we have done in an unbiblical way. This is just the fruit of it. It's the fruit of it. And we have to go back to the root and sever the root. That's how we look at culture. There is, in the world, an equal opposite to what we do in our worship. We Christians, we proclaim the good news of Christ's sin-crushing death and victorious resurrection. The world proclaims good news as well. What is their good news? Man's autonomy. The church heralds the blood of Christ. The world heralds the blood of infants. The church partakes of the Lord's Supper. The world partakes of the table of demons. 
The church sings the songs of Christ's victory, but the world sings the songs of man's supremacy. We have God's word. The world has man's word. We pray, we confess our sins. The world boasts and shouts their sins. Christ establishes the family with masculine men and feminine women. The world blurs this distinction, ultimately seeking its dissolution. Christ establishes the magistrate to punish evil. The world establishes the magistracy to punish good. That's our world right now. An utter antithesis between that which is good and that which is evil. And again, cultures are either oriented towards God in obedience or they're oriented toward God, toward idolatry in disobedience. And it remains the task of the church to cut through it all in order to establish some sort of cultural beachhead for the glory and praise of God. The gospel of Jesus is itself a culture. It is a culture. When you come to Christ, the gospel changes how you think about everything. It's a culture. And it has a vision for the rest of the world's culture as well. And when men come to Christ by faith, the heart is reoriented from idolatry to the worship and service of the living God. Moreover, Christ is enthroned over nations and he is enthroned over human hearts. So he is Lord of, over the heart. He's Lord over our minds, our soul, our strength. He is Lord over every single faith-filled believer. And Christ transforms cultures because Christ transforms the heart. And if you truncate that, well, Jesus only deals with the heart. He doesn't deal with all this other stuff, so don't worry about it. Don't get involved in it. If you sever that, you have made the gospel impotent. And that's what we are reaping today. The water downstream is pure because the fountainhead has been made right by the power of God. When the heart is made pure, everything that flows out of it is something transforming. I like how Joe Boot says it. He says it this way. If culture is the public expression of the worship of a people, and the gospel restores man to true worship, that is, of the creator, not the creation, then the gospel restores man to true culture, which is the kingdom of God. Man was not made to live a fragmented and dissonant life, but was made an integral being to worship and glorify God and have dominion under God in all things, end quote. In other words, the gospel itself, a true culture, transforms the false cultures of men by reorienting the worship that comes from the human heart. And as we close out this series, that's really precisely the point I want to make today. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to induce change within you. That's its purpose. It's meant to change who you are. And kids, if you can hear one thing today, hear that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to change you. It changes you. It informs our worship. It informs our pattern, patterns of living. It informs our outlook on life. So we're not pessimistic. Oh, everything is going to hell in a handbasket. There's nothing we can do. No, the world's on fire. Grab a squirt gun. What's your outlook on life? I mean, there are people really, really depressed. They don't have any joy. They see the news. They live for the news. They barely survived the COVID scandemic. Like, what, what, are we, what are they doing now? Well, now there's like a World War III looming. They're just depressed. 
There's no victory. But the gospel changes that. It makes us better husbands and wives, does it not? It makes us better fathers and mothers. The gospel informs everything like your mood and your attitude. How you wake up every morning. The gospel changes that. It changes our diligence. It changes our planning, how we structure our lives, how we organize our schedule. It changes all of that. Now, in terms of your baptism, I'm a slight pivot, but it'll, it'll connect. In terms of your baptism, remember that you have died with Christ. The old man, the old ways of life, the old worldview assumptions, even the old cultural norms that weren't in line with Scripture, when you are baptized, all of that dies with Christ. And you need to treat it as such. In your baptism, you die with Christ, but you also rise with him in new life. You become a new person with the Trinitarian name stamped upon you. You are a new man with a new life, with new worldview assumptions and new cultural norms that comport with Scripture. You have, Galatians 3 says, put on Christ. You have put him on. You are clothed with Messiah's righteousness. You are unified with the people of God. Baptism itself confers and issues a new culture with new worldview presuppositions, which gives us new life. And that should invigorate us. It should make us live differently. Cultural renewal happens in the world. Cultural renewal, renewal in the world happens when cultural renewal goes on in the church, when renewed people live in terms of their baptism. When we take seriously what we have in the gospel, we live very differently. And if you don't like how your life is right now, it's because you haven't taken seriously what the gospel does for you. We, we treat our spouses different. We parent differently. We do our jobs differently. And you think, well, we're, we're just different, right? Yes, we are holy. So make sure to be holy. Cultures are renewed when hearts are made new. And it's our task as the people of God to, to truly and earnestly live within a robust gospel culture and then we leaven the world in righteousness. And it doesn't happen overnight. None of this happened overnight. This has been decades of idolatry. So it's not just going to change in one fell swoop right overnight. That's not, you know, God has given gr grace in his spirit at certain times. Think of the Reformation, okay? Certain good things that came out of the bad doctrines of revivalism. We do know that God works, but it doesn't just work overnight, but it starts with you. We simply must be diligent in relating the gospel of the kingdom to our dead and dying and decaying culture. And why must we preach the gospel to a dead culture? Because our God knows his way out of the grave. That's why. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we appeal to you. We appeal to you and ask that as your word is proclaimed, as it's taught, as we read your word and expound upon it, that you would consecrate us and set us apart as your holy people so that we would truly live differently and be obedient to your word in all facets of life. Help us as we build a culture here, a culture that's built on forgiveness, not assuming, a culture that's built on love and self-sacrifice sacrifice, and not selfishness. Help us to live differently so that the world would take note. And as we engage the world around us, Lord, would you help us? Give us your spirit in fullness so that we can walk in step with him. 
and proclaim what is a strange deity to the world, but is the God who made all things, and that is you. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for your kingdom. And we pray that it would come on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.